The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I just want to remark on the new members. Those five new members were about the loudest and most enthusiastic I do people to the covenant that I think I've ever heard. And I just named that as I, I think that's a gift to us, a gift of grace. So welcome, new members. Thank you for joining us. I want to state my aim and then let's pray. My aim this morning is that by faith in God's promises to us in the gospel of Christ, as it's revealed here in this text, that we would grow in our love for Christ, that we'd be humbled by his grace toward us, and that accordingly we would show his grace and love to others in a way reflective of the grace that we have received from Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray. Well, first of all, thank you for your word. Thank you for its ever timeliness in speaking to us. And I do pray that by this glimpse of Christ uh, and the promises of the gospel that you would draw us into worship. May we marvel at your grace, humble us, and uh, change us from the inside out, and grant that we would show your grace to others accordingly. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just a word of context. For several weeks, we've been in Acts 8, in which we've seen the gospel break out of Jerusalem because of the persecution there, largely through Philip, the evangelist, as he has, has gone to Samaria and, and spoken with the Ethiopian eunuch, kind of plowing through uh, barriers of, of uh, ethnic prejudice and racism and, um, and religious division in uh, bringing the gospel to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopians in such a way that, that it's obvious, it's made clear uh, again and again in the Bible, but here it's made clear that God is calling all people to himself into one new people in Christ Jesus. And so now we're at this, it's, it's kind of a pivot point when we get to Acts 9 because the emphasis on Peter and, uh, and the, the church in Jerusalem and uh, even uh, uh, Philip the Evangelist is going to shift in the book of Acts. And we're going to hear less and less about Peter and more and more about the Apostle Paul from here on out. And so now, now we begin Acts 9. We'll just take a run at it. Our first introduction to Saul, who we later know as the Apostle Paul, you're going to catch me using these two names interchangeably. It's the same person, Saul the Pharisee meets Jesus, and shortly thereafter, he be begins going by the name Paul, the Apostle. So Saul and Paul are the same person, and it's Paul the Apostle who wrote so many letters of the New Testament. But, uh, so our first introduction to Saul, uh, who later became Paul, is this glimpse of a young religious man, religious leader, and he's at the stoning of Stephen. He stood on 
looking at the stoning with approval while the cloaks of those who were throwing the rocks were at his feet. That's Acts 8.1 and Acts 7.58. And when the Christians fled the persecution that began in Jerusalem that day, largely through his leadership, Saul went after the Christians like a wild animal after prey. Acts 8.3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He's ravaging, ravaging the church. It's an interesting word. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the of the Psalms for the behavior of a hungry wild boar in Psalm 30. You ever seen those videos of the hungry lion attacking the the baby giraffe or the antelope on YouTube? That's the picture I get. He's coming up. Saul is on a hunt for Christians to destroy them. Now let's walk through our account together. And I have an outline. The outline is four points. And they all begin with the word marvel. Marvel. Marvel, number one, marvel at the patience of Christ. Number two, marvel at the call of Christ. Number three, marvel at the lordship of Christ. And number four, marvel at the welcome of Christ. And what I mean by marvel is is see this description of the grace of Christ as wonderful, marvelous, amazing. And may our marvel cause us to worship. Number one, marvel at the patience of Christ. Our text begins in Acts 9. One with Saul continuing on the hunt that he started, uh, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He'd set out from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria. It's about 150 miles. I read that it would take about two weeks to get there by foot with letters from the synagogue leaders in Jerusalem that were like arrest warrants that when he got to Damascus, he could arrest these Christians probably on the charge of blasphemy. Verse 2 says, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Later in his life, in Galatians, Paul states that his goal was to destroy the church, Galatians 1.13, and the Christian faith, Galatians 1.23. He had every intention to arrest Christians, men or women, and shackle them and bring them back for trial, or maybe stoning. Why is he so zealous against the Christians? I mean, clearly, it's not just a different idea, this Christianity and his Judaism. It's personal to him. It's personal. If Jesus was true, he was false. If the gospel of Christ was right, he was wrong. And, and his acceptability and his pride and his assurance that God accepted him and valued him and praised him 
was nothing if the gospel was true. And all the status that he received from other people, like he's a very religious man, he walks around and people respect him for his religiosity, all of that is out the window. Everything he, he valued would be gone and taken away if Christianity were true. He writes in, in Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. I'm perfect. I mean, this is personal. If Christ was true, then all the gains that he had so painstakingly achieved in Judaism would become worthless rubbish. He would be a nobody. He would be exposed as a a shameful false teacher leading to a salvation that was damnable if it were true that salvation was found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's personal. He hated Christ and he hated Christians and he wanted to bring them to an end and he wanted to bring Christianity to an end. Marvel number one. Marvel at the merciful patience of Christ toward Paul. Christ did not show up on the road to Damascus and say, Saul, it's over. He didn't wipe him off the earth. He didn't make him go crazy like Nicodemus or like God. But uh, he allowed time for him to believe. This is one of the repeated descriptions of God in the Bible, namely that God is slow to anger. Remember the burning bush? Moses says to God, show me your glory. God says, I'll give you a glimpse. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and you can see when I'm passing by. And how does the Lord reveal himself to Moses? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. And that theme is picked up in the Psalms with this refrain. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145. And day after day, we, we sin by ignoring God and by belittling Him and pretending as if we're not utterly dependent on Him and seeking to set up our own kingdom for our own glory where we're the center of the world and And our name is the most important, not his. Day after day we sin. Does God's patience mean that 
Sin's not a big deal? No. He abhors our sin. He's holy. And yet he's patient with us. Sin is a capital crime against God that merits an eternal punishment. Sin is a big deal. Sin is such a big deal that in his patience, in God's slowness to anger, he set out a plan of salvation, the gospel, whereby to deal with sin, God would crucify his own son to deal with it for us. So, we do not presume on the patience of God that billions and billions of human beings through the millennia have sinned against God and he has been patient with us. But rather, marvel at the patience of God for this reason. Paul says it himself in Romans 2, 4. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Marvel at the patience of Christ with Paul and with us and see his patience as an invitation to come and be reconciled with him through Christ. Number two, marvel at the call of Christ. Verse three, now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Saul fell to the ground, and a loud voice spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what's Saul thinking? Is this the ghost of Stephen? Is this the ghost of some other Christian he had persecuted or executed? It's not the devil. The devil doesn't appear as a light from heaven. Saul asked, verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus mercifully reveals himself to Saul, saying in verse 5, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And though they didn't hear the, the, though they heard the sound, they didn't see anything. The companions uh, were speechless. All they could see was Saul flat on his face. And when Saul arose, To continue to Damascus, the companions helped him along the way. Marvel at the call of Christ here. It's it's ironic that when Saul could physically see, he couldn't spiritually see Christ. He was blind. And then now that he's lost his sight, for the first time, the eyes of his heart are open to interact with Jesus so it's, it's, it's very ironic that now he's blind, he can see. 
Paul would later liken God's saving call to what happened at creation. Genesis chapter 1. You know, remember Genesis chapter 1? The earth is without form and void and darkness covers the face. Everything's dark. Darkness covers everything. And God says, let there be light. Boom, and there's light. Saul says, the call of God is like that. The gospel call is like that. He says it in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, let there be light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you see what he's saying? He said, you know, in this moment, the lights came on and I could see Jesus as glorious and see the glory of God in his face and believe and be saved. It's the miracle of conversion. I mean, this is worth meditating on. If you're a believer, how is it that you came to see Jesus? How is it? I mean, just just meditate on the dynamics of light that Paul uses to describe conversion. You know, think about it. It's it's midnight, right? uh, The darkest place I've ever been is we were on a cheap cruise and uh, we're in the middle of the boat it's pitch black and all we can hear is the rumbling of the of the engine I slept like a baby I felt like I was in my mother's womb again <laughs> you could not see anything you open your eyes just pitch black think about it so when the lights come on why do I see do I see because I decided to see Or do do I see because the light has enabled me to see what's really there? That's the wonder, the marvel of conversion. That's the marvel of faith in Christ. God enabling us to see the light of his glory in Jesus Christ. Believe and be saved. Saved. So, there's another irony here. Other than Paul, now blind, he can finally see with spiritual eyes. The other irony here is, you know, Saul is this, this man who made it his zealous campaign to hunt down, ravage, and destroy Christians and, and destroy Christ. You catch the irony now? It's flipped. He's now been hunted down by Christ, tracked down, savingly called, apprehended, and captured by the grace of Christ. Francis Thompson, you may know this, wrote a poem about the hound of heaven. Just read a couple lines for you. As the hound follows the hare, never ceasing in its running, ever drawing nearer in the chase, with unhurrying and unperturbed pace, so does God follow the fleeing soul by his divine grace. And though in sin 
or in human love. Away from God, it seeks to hide itself. Divine grace follows after, unwearyingly follows ever after, till the soul feels its pressure forcing it to turn to him alone in that never-ending pursuit. <laughs> Just, the hound of heaven got hold of Paul. Marvel at the call of Christ, the pursuit of Christ, of his people, and his saving word that enables faith. Paul writes in Galatians 1.15, he frames this as the sovereign grace of God, whom he says, had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, having been pleased to reveal his son in me. When Jesus pursues us as sinners and calls us to himself, he reveals himself by the power of the gospel and the miracle of conversion happens and the gift of faith is given and everything changes. Marvel at the call of God, the call of Christ. Number three, marvel at the lordship of Christ. (laughs) The Lord Jesus said to Saul, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. We can go over this so fast that you don't feel it. Jesus is telling him what to do. (laughs) He did say, Lord, who is it? You know, right on, Saul. And Jesus says, get up and go to the city. What what does Saul do? Aye, aye, sir. He gets up and continues on his way to Damascus. Verse 8. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they, the companions, led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drink, nor drank. And I think, so what do you do? So you've been seeing all your life and now you can't see. What do you do? What do you do with your time? Verse 11 says, Saul was praying... And I assume, because he knows the Old Testament so well, he's, he's praying and thinking about the scriptures and, and the scriptures are informing his praying and the praying is causing him to think about the scriptures. And, and now, before Saul arrived in Damascus, the Lord appeared to this, this man, Ananias. And uh, he's a believer in Damascus. And... and The Lord says to Ananias, again, this just lands on me like lordship talk. Ananias, go. Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias is told to go meet with this Saul in Damascus. Just marvel at the Lordship of Christ 
you know, this man who is Pharisee, Saul, who set out from Jerusalem, believing he had authority to arrest Christians, authority over Christianity, and, and, and put it to an end, and just in a moment, it all flips. And he's the one under the authority of the Lord Jesus to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he responds accordingly. Jesus says, go, he goes. Jesus says, get up, he gets up. And heads to Damascus. Jesus doesn't ask Saul, Saul, uh, what do you think about a life of missions work, church planting around the world in which you're probably going to have to suffer a lot if you say yes to this. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't talk to them that way. He rather sets him apart for this mission to which Saul has been ordained by the Lord Jesus. And what does Saul do? He aligns himself with the mission of the Lord with passion and ambition for the rest of his life till he's killed in that mission. Just, just marvel at the lordship of Jesus here over Paul and over us. Fourth one. Marvel at the welcome of Christ. You know, think about it. How, how is this going to play out when Saul, the persecutor of the church, Saul, the Pharisee, much feared by Christians, how is this going to play out when Saul, the Christian, arrives in Damascus? <laughs> you know, let's say the Lord gave you the assignment to meet and greet Saul on his arrival to Damascus. You know, you know all this stuff about him. He's a, he's a Christian killer, and he's here to kill and arrest. You know, so I love the trust of Ananias. He trusts that this word from Jesus to go meet with Saul is a good word. It overcomes his fear. And uh, verse 17. I mean, you know that one of the enemies of love is fear, right? You know that. Ananias could have caved into unbelief. I am too afraid to meet with this guy Saul. Forget it. It's too hard. I'm afraid. It's not safe. Fear is the enemy of love. But faith overcomes fear. He trusted the word of Jesus. Go. The word here, 17, describes what happened next. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight 
Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So Saul's sight is restored. His strength is restored. He's baptized into, the, into Christ and into the body of believers. <sighs> Marvel at the welcome of Christ. When you, whoever you are, receive grace to believe in Jesus, you belong. You belong to Christ and you belong to his people. Think of it. The converting call of God and the word of Christ are enough to overcome suspicions that we might have, uh, prejudices we might have, preconceived notions we might have of one another. And here, those kinds of things would have excluded Saul for I don't know how long from the fellowship of believers. But, I mean, just the marvel just kicks in for me when I see Ananias in this text put his hands on Saul and say two words, Brother Saul. That's amazing. That's amazing. Such is the welcome of Christ. Such is the welcome of Christ. When we're called to Christ, we're called into the family of God. God is our Father, Christ our older brother, and we're brothers and sisters belonging to one another. It's real. Amazing. So I need to close. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said, my aim, my hope, was that we would grow in our love for Jesus, be humbled by his grace, and be moved to accordingly show his love to one another in surprising ways. I'm just going to walk through the four points. So number one, point number one was marvel at the patience of Christ toward Saul, Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy 1.16 where he says, this is a true and trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And then he says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You get it? So you marvel at the patience of Christ with Paul, marvel at the patience of Christ to you. And come on in. Run to Jesus. He's been patient, slow to anger, and receive his grace and love for you. And may his patience toward you and me find an echo in our patience with one another when 
you sin against me or I sin against you. No excuses. Pursuing repentance. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. But all with forbearance. Patience. Number two, I said, marvel at the call of Christ towards Saul. You know, it's amazing that God overcame the resistance in Saul's head and heart to the gospel and to Christ by the call of the gospel, the, the, the opening of Saul's eyes to see Jesus and believe in him. And marvel at this miracle of conversion. If God can save Saul, God can save you. And if God can save Saul, God can save your spouse, your father or mother, your child, your friend, your coworker who seems so far from the grace of Christ. You know, th there's a story, um, I can't remember how many years ago, several years ago, uh, there was a F Minnesota Vikings football player that attended Bethlehem. And his name was Wally Hilgenberg. And at a men's retreat that we had several years ago, he described how the Lord drew him to Christ. And the backstory was this. There were a few believers on the Minnesota Vikings team, and Jeff Seaman was one of them. And he gathered with this little core group of believers on the Minnesota Vikings, uh, among the players and probably coaches as well, and they said, we're, we're praying for, for the team, we're praying for conversions, but who is the least likely to become a Christian? And they all said, Wally Hilgenberg. He's the baddest, evilest, wickedest, meanest, hardest guy on the team. And you know what happened? Christ called him and saved him. And when I heard him at the men's retreat, he was the gentlest giant, <laughs> full of love and mercy and grace and respect for his wife and, and, and his kids and the church and it was amazing. Marvel at the saving call of Christ. Third, marvel at the lordship of Christ, his sovereign authority. Ponder how his sovereign grace and goodness has flowed to you through his lordship over you. Be inclined to believe his, authority, uh, his authoritative word that he speaks to you as Lord for your good. And let not his lordship, his, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Let not his lordship and his authority skew your view of leadership and authority. I mean, Jesus makes this so clear. 
you might know where I'm going. When he's talking with the disciples about, you know, who gets to be first and who gets to throw their weight around. And, and Jesus says this so clearly. He says, look, guys, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. For the Son of Man, Jesus himself, for the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So marvel at the Lordship of Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth coming as a servant to lay down his life for us as his people. And may God give us grace that as we marvel and enjoy his lordship, our, our, all of our leadership responsibilities in the home and in the school and in the church and in marriage will be an echo and reflection of his lordship. Fourth, marvel at the welcome of Christ. You know, I mentioned just that, the dear phrase, Brother Saul. And I wonder if, if Paul then, toward the end of his life, when he penned these words toward the end of the book of Romans, might have had this moment in mind, this Ananias moment, when he urged the church at Romans, excuse me, the church in Rome to this. He says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you to the glory of God. Romans 15, 7. Just marvel at the welcome of Christ to us. And I pray that we might show, we might glorify his welcome of us in showing welcome to others for his glory. Pray together. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. And we do marvel at your grace to us in Christ in all these ways. changes from the inside out by faith in you. May we see and enjoy your mercy, grace, patience anew, day after day. Humble us and may we show your grace and mercy and love to one another. Day after day, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.